amazes me is when we were yet sinners, he died for us. Amen? While we were yet his enemies, he died for us. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. And you will note I have my Bible with me, and I'm uh, reading out of the New King James Version. If you have your Bible, turn, uh, grab it, open it, Matthew 2, first book in the New Testament. If you don't have it, we've got the verse right up here. And it's Matthew 2, 19 through 21, and then verse 23. I'm going to, now my, I have preached for a long time. I started when I was 19-ish, when I was still a teenager. And now at 45, it's been a long time. That's a joke, son. I wish you wouldn't laugh that hard. <laughs> no, now I've had a very, very long preaching career. I'm thankful to God for it. I've literally preached most of my life. But, you know, the Word of God is inexhaustible. You could live to be a thousand. You would not exhaust this book. This is the greatest book in the entire world. It's the only book in the world, not of the world or from the world. Because every, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Amen? So this is the word of God. Pick your greatest Christian author. I don't care what they write. It's not the word of God. So every day you ought to read it. Now that's free. But in all these years of preaching, I've never preached on what I'm going to preach today. I want to talk to you about Jesus' silent years. The silent years. The 30 years between his birth and his launch into his ministry, where the Bible is almost, not fully, as we're going to see today, but very little has told us about it. It's the silent years. Jesus was not on the public stage. He was not out there in red-hot ministry. He was hidden away in obscurity. And I'm going to show you some things that um, happened with him in the silent years and what we can learn that he modeled for us in the silent years. How many of you are excited about this? You are at least curious. Amen? All right. Matthew 2, verse 19. Now, when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. They'd already fled to Egypt. Now they're coming back. He says, arise, take the young child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. Then he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. Now jump down to verse 23. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He should be called a what, everyone? A Nazarene. Father, thank you for your word today. Bless it to our hearts, I pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it's going to be good today. Perk up and listen. You're going to need it before you get home. Yeah. All right. Now, I'm starting with this text because here's where the silent years of Jesus began. And you probably know the narrative that led up to those verses. The baby Jesus was born, wicked King Herod being threatened by anybody else called a king. Uh, released an edict commanding that every male child two years old and under should be killed. And so the prophecy was fulfilled, Rachel weeping for her children because they are not. And there was a terrible slaughter of young children in Bethlehem, and it was very satanic. It was, But God had warned Joseph in a dream to grab the child and mother and flee 
to Egypt. And so they stayed in Egypt until God redirected them to return because the wicked King Herod had died. So the threat was gone. So they've returned. Now, when they returned, uh, we have Jesus beginning to grow up. Jesus is now growing up. And it's the silent 30, the silent years. He's growing up. The four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're all well aware when you read them, they mainly focus on the final three and a half years. Jesus' ministry, where he raised the dead, opened blind eyes, healed the sick, cleansed lepers, walked on water, fed the multitudes, and you know all the miracles. And so that's the main focus of the Gospels, the, the birth, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. That's the Gospels. Now, very little is said about those silent years. Luke gives us most of the information. If you want to know what happened during the silent years, you read mainly Luke, although Matthew does give us a few insights. Luke expounds on it more. He focuses more on the, on the childhood and the growing up of Jesus. And even though there's not a whole lot said about it, Anything having to do with Jesus, the Son of God, guaranteed is rich and full of instruction for us. One little verse could teach us a lot, but we've got more than just one or two verses about the silent 30 years. Now, let's look at what we do know about those those times. I'm going to hop over some of the highlights Matthew and Luke give us. We know that after fleeing to Egypt, that Herod died. And Joseph was directed to bring Jesus and Mary back. On returning, they decided to live in Nazareth. Now, they thought, well, this is just a good idea. I think we'll move here. What they did not realize is that their decision was a fulfillment of prophecy. And I want you to notice how God can lead you when you don't know you're being led. Amen. The steps of a good person are ordered by the Lord, whether they know it or not. See, when you're his, he sovereignly leads you. Now, I believe in the divine guidance of God and getting it and doing your best to follow the Lord the way he shows you. But I can tell you, looking back on my life, there are many times I can see he ordered my steps when I was unaware. Okay? And that's what happened here. It was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that they moved to Nazareth. It says in uh, verse 23, he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. So prophecy fulfilled. One of many fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Now we're also told in Luke 2.27 that when Jesus was a 40-day-old baby. He was taken to the temple to be dedicated to the Lord. Per the instructions Moses had given in the Old Testament in Leviticus 12, verses 1 through 8. You can read that if you want to. But they were following the, the Old Testament law that Moses had given about dedicating children. This is why we dedicate children here. Because it's, it's in the scriptures. Uh, Samuel was dedicated. John the Baptist was dedicated. The Lord Jesus Christ was dedicated 40 days after he was born. Dedicating them doesn't save them. But dedicating them is our way of saying, Lord, this child is yours. You gave this child to me, but this child is also yours. 
And I need all the grace and all the mercy you can give me to help raise this child in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. But I recognize this child as a gift from God. Amen? Now, when he was taken into the temple to be dedicated, the Bible says that two people were there by the Holy Spirit who had been told, uh, well, Simeon was one and Anna was another. Simeon had been told, you're not going to die. And he was an old man, said, you're not going to die till you see the Lord's Messiah. And so by the Spirit, he came into the temple. And Simeon predicted that Jesus would be a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel, Luke 2.32. So Simeon prophesied that Jesus the Messiah was not just for the Jew, but for the Gentile, you and me. Amen. And then Anna was there. Anna was a widow. They were both older, aged in years. And Anna, when she saw him, was moved on by God, and she picked him up. And she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. So Anna prophesied and, and affirmed and validated that redemption would come from this baby. That's in the early years. Now next, Luke provides a short but powerful synopsis of Jesus' young formative years. So we have that little snapshot, them in the temple. Now we're jumping ahead in time a little bit. And Luke tells us how Jesus grew up. I love this. And the child grew. How did he grow? He became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now, let me tell you something. That's exactly the way God wants you and me to grow. This way Jesus grew. And remember, he's our model. How did Jesus grow? He grew mighty in his spirit, man. We could say that Jesus on the inside was muscular. And he grew in wisdom. And the grace of God was upon him. That's the way I want to live. I want to be mighty in my spirit, man. I want to be mighty in my inner man. I want to be mighty spiritually. How many of you are with me on that? I want to be, I don't want to be just getting by. I want to be mighty in my spirit, man. I want my inner man to grow strong in the Lord. I want to grow and bring forth much fruit. But I also want to grow in wisdom. I don't want to be, I don't want to be spiritually dumb. I want to grow in wisdom. And I also want the grace of God to be on my life. So everybody say with me, strong, wise, full of grace. Is that the way you want to grow up in the Lord? Amen. So with that one verse, Luke lets us know how the baby Jesus grew into a boy and from a boy into a young man, as God prepared him for his ministry, his focus was on his inner man, his wisdom, and the grace of God that was upon him. And then we jump forward in time again. And Luke relates something that happened when Jesus was only 12 years old. So we're taking a big leap here from, from a baby and then a little boy in Egypt and moving back to Nazareth, now we're leaping years ahead and he's 12. Now, when I read what I'm about to read, I want you to remember when you were 12. What were you doing when you were 12? What were you thinking when you were 12? Amen? Think of this now. Joseph and Mary had traveled to Jerusalem to attend the feast of the Passover, which they did every time, every year. 
And they took the 12-year-old Jesus with them to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When it came time to leave, here's what it says. The boy, capital B, Jesus, lingered behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it. We read that Joseph and, his, uh, and Mary traveled an entire day. Now, they were with a company of people. They weren't just with uh, themselves. They, they came with a company, probably some relatives and friends and whatnot. So there was a group of them, and they're traveling back home from Jerusalem. They've done the feast of the Passover, and, and they're cooking along, and they have traveled. Now, this is not driving for a day. This is walking for a day or riding a donkey for a day. And at the end of the day, they look around and they realize Jesus is not with them. Jesus is nowhere to be found. And, and, and so, of course, uh, they kind of freak. Mary really gets concerned, alarmed by this revelation. Where's Jesus? We, we've traveled a whole day. He's not with you. He's not with you, Frank. He's not with you, Uncle Joe. He's not with you. Where is he? So they turned around and they went back a whole day. How many of you know that would not put you in a good mood? Even if you were driving, this would not put you in a good mood. This would not bless you. Now, they get all the way back, and the Bible says this. They search for him for three whole days. That's going to put you in a worse mood. Three whole days. They make it all the way back on foot or on donkey, all the way back to Jerusalem, and they can't find him. They sleep one night, they sleep two nights, and on the third day, interesting, th after three days, they found him. But on the third day, they finally find him. And where was he? Well, he wasn't playing video games. No, let me tell you, he was in the temple. He was in the temple. He was in church. Surrounded by teachers of the law, listening to them and asking them questions. Now remember, 12. 12. What would you say to doctors of the law when you're 12 years old? Huh? Nothing. But here's Jesus. Here's Jesus. And these, these teachers, now you got to understand who they were. They're intellectual elites of Jesus' time. These are famous doctors of the law. When I say the law, I mean the Old Testament. These are religious scholars. These are the intellectual select of the elect. These are the top-notch minds in Judaism of that day. And there, sitting in the midst of them, sat the 12-year-old Jesus. 12, 12. Can I say 12 again? And what is he doing? He's listening to them. And he's asking them questions. Now, in those days, just so you give you a little picture here, older students who had been under their teaching for a while were allowed to sit on a bench below them, beneath them, sort of looking up at these uh, famous teachers, all right? So they were on a bench. And younger students sat on the ground, literally at the feet of these famous instructors. So you had some sitting on a bench like here, and then some on the ground, and they're all looking up at these instructors. But when we find Jesus, he had so amazed them by his questions and by his statements that we don't find that set up at all. We find them sitting in a circle around Jesus, 12 years old. Luke records, all who heard him 
were astonished at his understanding and answers. So you've got a a boy, a 12-year-old, who is precocious with a capital P. His mind is far, 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 far beyond his years. He is, you can't even call him a genius because he's beyond genius. He created genius. And here he is. He's got the masters of the law sitting around him. And the one who would debate them and confront them just a few years from then is asking them questions and giving them answers that so astounds them. They come down from their perch and they surround him in a circle and they're focused on him. Now, Mary comes walking in and she is not touched by this scene. She tells Jesus what for. She says, son, why have you done this to us? And I'm picturing a mother here. Why have you done this to us? And she says, look, your father and I have sought for you anxiously. You have worried us to death. Don't you realize that, Jesus? But listen to the response of the 12-year-old Jesus. Why'd you seek me? Well, duh, you're 12 years old. You went missing. You've been missing four days. That's why I'm seeking you. But no, listen to this. From 12-year-old Jesus, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Did you not know? Can you imagine a 12-year-old, any 12-year-old you know? Where were you? I was at church. How come? Did you not know I must be about my father's business? Lord, give me a 12-year-old like that. (laughs) Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Did you not know? Now, on its face, this seems like a really callous response to poor Mary. She has been chewing her nails for four days now. And it sounds like he's not sensitive to her. It sounds like he's, he's sassing her, sort of. It, it, it's not the kind of response you would expect. And that's what I thought when I first read it. And then I realized what was going on. See, when Jesus asks a question, he never needs your answer. Jesus never wonders anything. He needs us to fill him in on. He asked the question to make a point. The only time Jesus ever asked a question was when he wanted to teach you something you needed to understand. So within the question is a message, always. And so what was the message? The message was, Mary, you seem to forget what happened 12 years ago when you miraculously, supernaturally conceived, and I'm not normal. Have you forgotten, Mom? Have you forgotten? You were a virgin and the Holy Spirit overshadowed you and you, you conceived and I don't have an earthly father. That's why I must be about my heavenly father's business. Have you forgotten, Mom? So it's a little nudge. Because, see, I believe in all the 12 years of hustle and bustle and dealing with life and paying bills and working and just making, just doing life. The, the fact of his miraculous conception had just a little bit faded to the background, and they had begun to look at him like a normal son. But listen, folks, he was never normal. He was God, man, man, God. He was all God, all man, all man, all God. He was divinity walking around on earth with skin wrapped around him. And so we see even as a 12-year-old boy, he's beyond his years He's dealing with theological matters that nobody 12 would ever wrestle with. He's literally instructing instructors at 12. Now, I believe we can safely assume some things about Jesus' silent years. Let me just give you a few quick things. 
And then we're going to apply all this and some things to learn from this. First, like any young boy, Jesus played and learned and helped his family with daily chores. He never gave any hint that he was who he said, who he knew that he was. He never gave any hint that he was all God, all man, all man, all God. The divinity remained concealed. The, the divinity in him remained in check. Like all children, he had a first word and a first step. Jesus. I'd love to know what his first word was. Wouldn't you? The teacher. Capital T, greatest teacher of all time. What was his first word? God, Father, life, light. But you know what? Let me tell you, it could have been Mama because he was all God, all man, all man, all God. He had friends that he played with. Can you imagine playing with Jesus and when he grows up and goes into his ministry saying, I used to run around with that guy. We play marbles in the streets of Jerusalem, Right? We we were buds. He traveled to to Jerusalem every year with his family for the feast of the Passover. We know he did because it says they did that every year, night after night. This Jesus would sleep underneath the stars that he himself created. Please get a hold of this church. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Nothing that was made was made without him. Everything flowed through the fingertips of God the Son. And yet he's walking around on earth as a boy. He breathed our air. He suffered through the heat of Nazareth summers. The ordinary life of a young man is all anybody around him knew. He never gave them reason to think anything else. He was just like a a normal guy. That's why later on, after his ministry had exploded, the townspeople said this about him. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers are James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? In other words, where did he get all this? Isn't this the guy we ran around with, the little boy we saw growing up in the neighborhood down the street? During the silent years, we could say that Jesus was the best kept secret in town. Yes, he was the best kept secret in town. Think about this, folks. Go with me. Use your sanctified imagination. God the Son, who flung the stars into space, who scooped out the valleys, who uh, spoke the oceans into being, and all life, marine life, the birds, the mammals, and, and, and created man from the clay of the ground. That same one, think about that, that same one, chose to grow up in deep obscurity of an out-of-the-way village, in a conquered land, in a despised little town, in its most disregarded valley. The obscurity that God the Son lived in is amazing. And all the while, though the world was made through him, The world did not know or recognize him because he kept his divinity in check. He never healed a person. He never multiplied bread. He never did anything miraculous in the growing up silent years. Divinity was held in check, waiting for the moment that God would tap him and say, now, go to the river, 
be baptized by John, go into the wilderness, defeat the devil, and I'm going to, I'm going to put the power of my spirit upon you, and then your ministry will launch. But until then, he lived in this obscurity. Everybody say with me, humility. Humility. God tucked away in this little corner of the world, God in the form of a boy and then a young man. The silent years. What was it like to say, hey, Jesus, you want to go down and shoot some marbles or you want to go throw a ball? And Jesus went with you. I wonder how well he threw that ball. I wonder if it hovered. I wonder if he ever had a bad throw. One thing we do know, never once did his mother ever have to say, uh, son, that was wrong. You should not have done that. Never. Never once did he from birth to 30 or his whole life ever have to look up and say, God, forgive me. I shouldn't have done that, thought that, been there. None of that said that. Forgive me. Never. Not one time. He was an ideal boy to raise. Amen. So what is the message for us today? I want to just give you some simple things that we can walk away with and learn from the silent years of Jesus. Now, I want to read his words to you. John 13, 15. Listen to what he said. I have set you an example. Everybody say an example. So what does that mean? We're to look at him and learn. When he says, I've set for you an example, then that means we're to look at and, and whatever he did, we're to model it. Whatever he did, we're to apply it. He said, I've set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So we tend to look at that and go, well, that's talking about the ministry years. No, that's not just talking about the ministry years. That's also talking about the silent years. How do he live during the silent years? What did he do as an example for us to live by, because Jesus is our example. Can I just tell you today, Oprah's not my example. Dr. Phil's not my example. No media figure is my example. No, my example on how to do life and living is Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. He's my example. He's the one I model my life after. He gave us his teaching and he said, now I've taught you, now go do it. Blessed is the one who does it, not just hears it, but does it. So he says, now I've given you an example that you should do, that you should live, that you should model your life after my life. And so what do we learn? Well, here's what we learn from the silent years. And I just pulled these things out. You might find some more. But here's some of the ones that I saw that really jumped at me. First of all, don't promote yourself. Always promote the Lord. I want you to know something about promotion. Promotion comes from the Lord. The Bible tells us in the book of Psalms that promotion comes from the Lord. Because see, if you put yourself in that position, whatever it is, you've got to keep you in that position. But if God puts you in that position, then God's got to keep you in that position. And I'd much rather be in a position the Lord put me in than I put myself in because I don't want to have to scratch and claw and struggle and strain and step on people to get into a position. No, I want it to be said by me from heaven, come up hither, Jeff. It's time for a promotion. And I want to step into the promotion God is giving me, not that I gave myself. Amen? Now... The Bible says that Jesus made himself of no reputation. Think about this. He knew who he was. Jesus knew who he was. Clearly, by the time of 12 years old, he knew who he was. 
What's a 12-year-old doing in here giving answers to doctors who are always teaching others? What, 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 what is going on here? He knew who he was. Don't, don't you know, Mom, that I should be about my father's business? He knew who he was. But knowing who he was, he didn't use his outstanding giftedness to, to promote himself, to become famous. He went the other direction and made himself of no reputation. Now, here's what we tend to think. We tend to think, well, if I don't put myself up there, I'm never going to get up there because other people are pushing and striving to get up there, and it's a dog-eat-dog world, so I better get myself up there. Let me tell you something about God. When God decides to promote you, no man and no devil is going to stop it. He will put you where he wants you to be. Amen. And how do you get promoted? You humble yourself like Jesus did. The humble shall be exalted and the proud shall be brought low. You humble yourself. And you say, Lord, I'm just going to serve you. I'm learning from Jesus here. What did he do? He he grew in wisdom. He grew mighty. He focused on his spiritual growth, not on promotion. And when God's day came, the son was promoted and nothing could stop it. Amen? So don't promote yourself. Say that with me. Don't promote yourself. Always promote the Lord. Lift up Jesus. Always promote the Lord. Lift him up. Because as you serve, God sees it. And God has his moment for all of us to put us into the place he's called us to be. Do you believe that? So I learned that from Jesus. Being God the Son, he did not promote himself. He promoted the Lord. Second, have a good work ethic. I learned this from Jesus in the silent years. Jesus labored with his hands as a carpenter until the day his ministry was launched. Jesus wasn't lazy. He didn't expect handouts. Watch this, everybody. He didn't expect handouts because of who he was. He didn't expect everything to be given to him because of who he was. No, no, no. Jesus had a work ethic. God the Son for years, for most of his life before his ministry, was a blue-collar worker in the carpentry trade. He worked with his stepfather, Joseph, and they built things. The very wood he had created, he worked with. He had callous hands. He had muscular arms. He was not this limp-wristed, kind of Hollywood star-looking guy with long blonde hair and blue eyes, walking around looking like some male model. No, Jesus was sun-beaten and tough and sinewy and was a worker with wood. He did not live under give me, give me everything because of who I am. He would never have gone with socialism. Did you know that socialism is not biblical? Uh, I had somebody text me the other day. I try not to get in Facebook controversies or, or online controversies, but this person said, hey, listen, if you're against socialism, you're against the Bible because the Bible teaches socialism. No, it does not. And then they send me these verses about the book of Acts and the book of Acts in the early church, and how they all gave things away, and they had everything in common after the Holy Spirit had fallen. 
They had everything in common. And so this person said to me, see, that's socialism. I said, no, it's not. Because socialism is mandated. Socialism is forced. And this was not forced. This was charity, not socialism. And if you're going to tell me it was socialism, it was forced charity. And forced charity is no charity at all. Because charity flows from a heart that wants to give, not that is mandated to give. They wanted to give to one another because they loved one another but there was no edict coming down from the apostles. You've got to give up everything you have. It was a, an organic move of the Holy Ghost when they began to help one another. It was not mandated socialism. Did you know that God established capitalism and free enterprise in the Garden of Eden? You say, oh, come on, Jeff. Now you're really going off the rails. No, I'm not. God created Adam and Eve. God gave Adam a garden to take care of. And he said, take care of that garden, Adam, and that's what you'll live off of. You will work and you'll live, you will eat off of what you work and earn. That's capitalism. That is free enterprise. As much as you grow, you can eat. As much as you grow, you can live. It's all yours. Grow whatever you want. God never established socialism. God would never force us to have charity. Because that's not charity. I give to the work of the Lord, not because I'm forced. I give to the work of the Lord because I believe in the work of the Lord. And I want people to be saved. I want people to be reached by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if I never got a dime from God for my giving, that wouldn't stop my giving at all. I give because I want to see the gospel go forth and the kingdom of God be advanced in the earth. That's why I give. It's always bothered me, this teaching. Yeah, it, it, turns, it turns giving into sort of a, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, an investment scheme, almost a pyramid scheme. You give 10, God will give you 100. You give 100, God will give you 1,000. You want to drive some hot car, you give enough money to this ministry, and God will give you that hot car. That turns everything into, I'm only giving for what I can get. That's cheap giving. I didn't mean to preach on all this. This isn't anywhere in my notes or anything. But I get so tired of it. All these scams and schemes that come over Christian TV and Christian radio. Give this and God will give you that. Give to this ministry. Uh, and, 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 you know, the, I got to be careful where I go here. But, you know, some of these fundraising things that go on on Christian TV. I know they don't believe what they're saying because if they believe what they're saying, the ones that are saying it would empty their bank account and give to it. I'm sorry, I can't help that I think and I look at things. See, you don't need to give so you can get. You say, what about sowing a seed? Oh, sure, sow a seed. But it may come back in things money can't buy. I've tithed my whole adult life, my entire adult life, from my low 20s to now. I've tithed. I've tithed by my own choice. But I don't believe if I quit tithing, God's going to curse me. Jeff, now you're really going in trouble water. No, listen. Because if I believe if I tie, if I don't tithe, God's going to curse me. Doesn't that make my relationship with God dependent on money 
and giving and not grace? Listen, some of the greatest spiritual experiences I've ever had happened when I didn't have two nickels to rub together to give to God at all. He baptized me in the Holy Spirit when I was poor. He saved me when I was poor. He called me to the ministry when I was poor. He blessed my socks off with all kinds of spiritual experiences when I didn't have a dime. I don't buy his blessing. I have his blessing because of God's grace on me. And I believe, I believe that if you tell people, no, God's not going to kill you if you don't tithe, but the blessing of giving and seeing those little children walk around with shoes, seeing people get saved, their lives delivered, seeing people all around the nation being taught the word of God through turning point by radio, by satellite. That's the blessing. And I would give to that if God never gave me another dime. He's given me enough. He saved me. I'm going to heaven and not to hell, which I richly deserved. There are pastors who would say, I just committed suicide saying those things. But you know what? I've always, I've taught that. And, and our church was so taken care of during this 2020 pandemic. We never were laid on a bill uh, the people of God came through uh, and, and, and continue. God continues. We were able to do these lights during the pandemic, the, the LEDs, the, the, the new camera. We were able to do so many things during the pandemic because God blessed. No, God's not a socialist. If God is anything, he's a capitalist. That's the way he made the world. You, you work that field and that's what you live off of. Socialism is stealing from somebody that's worked and giving it to somebody who hasn't. That's not God's way. God's way is till your garden. Get out there and do something and take care of yourself. And of course you can't. And I understand if you can't. Then I fully believe in benevolence and helping people. And I do it pretty routinely with others. So Jesus wasn't lazy. He didn't want handouts even though he was God the Son. Third, submit to the authorities God places in your life. And don't resent them. Listen to what it says he did. He went down with them, his parents, uh, his stepdad and mother. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them. He submitted to the authorities in his life. Though he's the one who had all authority. He subjected himself. He didn't resent the authorities in his life. After Mary told him what for. And he responded. It says he humbled himself and submitted to her authority. We're living in a nation that despises authority, hates authority. And it's always satanic when you come against the authority that God's established. So whoever are the authorities over your life, um, you know, whatever it may be, your boss, whatever. Now, I'm not saying you ought to put up with endless abuse. Please take this in balance. I'm just saying all of us have authorities in our life, and they don't always do what we like. But you submit to them, and God will use them as the hammer and chisel to fashion and shape you into what he wants you to be. Finally, be content. Be content with what you have. That was Jesus in the silent years. Be content with what you have. He didn't have much of this world's goods. We know that. But he lived a peaceful, quiet life focused fully on his spiritual growth. 
He grew mighty in spirit. He grew great in wisdom. He, he grew in the grace of God, and he distributed grace to those around him. But he didn't have much of this world's goods, but he was content. The Bible says, be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I'm not telling you not to try to make for yourself a better life, but, but always stop where you are and say, you know what? I don't have everything I want, but I've got what I need. And so I just thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord. I'm not always going to be wringing my hands about what I don't have. I'm thankful for what I do have. I do have. It may be an old car, but it got you here today. It may be an old house, but it protected you last night. It may be a creaky bed, but you slept in it. It may not be satin sheets, but they felt good enough for you to fall asleep in last night. It may not be 3,000 square feet, but it's 1,500, and it's enough for you to get by. Thank God for what you have. And focus on growing in wisdom and spiritual might on the inside and grace. Let's stand together, can we? Everybody say the silent years. And that, I didn't extract from the silent years near what I could, but that's a taste. How many of you are glad we learned about the silent years? Amen? The silent years. Let's lift our hands to the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for your blessing. Lord, thank you for what Jesus modeled for us in the silent years. Say with me, church, Lord, I won't promote myself. I'll leave promotion to you. Help me to have a good work ethic like you did. Help me not to resent the authorities in my life. And Lord, grace me to be content with what I have. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Can we just lift our hands and just have a thank, thank Jesus moment? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. God loves you so much today. He loves me. Amen. My daughter last week was uh, driving down the road, and she saw a homeless man with a little dog. And so she has a heart for dogs, and she said, Dad, for the first time ever, I felt that I should stop and talk to him. And I stopped and talked to him. And I said, how did you become homeless? Because she said he was very articulate. And he said, well, I became homeless about a year ago. He said, I had a good job, and it was something in engineering. And this and that and the other happened with my job. And I lost it. And because of my age, no one would hire me. So I started watching everything that I had drop off until all I had left was my little dog. And I had to go to the street. And she said, well, where do you stay? And she said, he said, I stay under that bridge. So my daughter went and got him and the dog some food, gave it to him. 
you think you're having trouble you're not under a bridge but he held this little dog and said this is my little buddy I've had him 10 years this is my friend under a bridge with a dog and he used to be an engineer but he's thankful for the dog Can we just again say thank you, Jesus, for what you've given me? Amen. Give the Lord a hand of praise. Give the Lord a hand of praise. Amen.